0: Welcome to Can You Hold My Attention? I'm your host, Eric Bruton. Thank you for tuning into my podcast today. On this show, I invite some of the most important and exciting leaders in wealth management and fintech to discuss and debate the latest trends and hottest topics facing financial advisors today. So why should you listen to this show? Well, my goal is for you to learn one or two ideas that will help you run a better business and or become a stronger leader. These shows have been a blast to do, mostly because of the great guests and the interesting conversations we've had. You can follow Can You Hold My Attention on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher. (music) Philip Pallaveb, he's the king of analogies, he's the master of the metaphor, and he's one of the most well-respected professionals in financial services. Philip is the CEO of The Ensemble Practice, a consulting firm he founded in Seattle, Washington. Quite simply, Philip helps advisors build more successful businesses. But with his analogies and metaphors, Philip has a way of illustrating a point better than anyone I've ever worked with in this industry. His knowledge of the advisor business, and particularly the ensemble, or, group practice is what makes him one of the most sought after coaches for advisors and institutions catering to financial advisors. Those that have been around Philip know that it's the great perspective he's accumulated as a principal at Moss Adams, then as a leader of a large advisory practice, and now as a successful business owner that makes him a rare but valuable resource to any advisor who truly wants to improve his or her business. But most of all, Philip meets in spades one of the most important criteria of being a guest on Can You Hold My Attention, which is the fact that he's just a good-natured guy who pours his heart into making this industry a better place to be. Hey, Philip, welcome to the show.
1: Very much, very much, glad, Great to be here and great to be talking to you again. Uh, those are always very interesting conversations.
0: Yeah, we've, we've had a lot over our years. We've known each other a long time. Uh, you've worked with companies I've been involved with and, uh, you always bring not just tremendous amount of knowledge to the table, but a different point of view, which is always great and a great sense of humor to go with it. So, uh, I've been trying, it's one of those things, you know, you try to remember all the jokes that Phillips told over the years. When I get to the punchline, I ultimately butcher all of them. So Maybe you can uh, write a book for us, or or copy them all down, or something like that.
1: <laughs> you know, I I distinctly remember I was uh, I was making a presentation, um, and I was talking about practice management or things like that. And uh, it, it, you know, I may have told a couple of jokes or a couple of things to just amuse myself. Most of the time, that's what I'm trying to do. And I'm coming off the stage, and this advisor comes over, shakes my hand, and I'm expecting him to ask me something about the presentation or to say something about the presentation. And he says, you know what? You're really funny. Maybe you should try to be a comedian. And i looking at him and says, are you trying to say I'm a bad consultant that, that I really need another career because this one's not going very well for me? Because uh, that really kind of what amounts it, uh, it amounts to. To be honest, I I mean, I enjoy laughing. Um, and I try to amuse myself a little bit with this. Um, and also to a degree, because you and I will get in the kind of in the thick of that conversation about the challenges of running a business and the challenges of of building something out of nothing which is essentially what entrepreneurs try to do and sometimes you also need a sense of humor uh, because otherwise um, you know it's difficult and it's challenging and it's frustrating it's disappointing so at times you just got to look at it with a sense of humor and uh, and tell yourself that it's going quite okay
0: well, you've always done great from stage because you have that humor. And it's your hook that gets people into what's right after that humor, which is called the serious stuff, but your knowledge of this business. And, you know, you went from being a partner. I think you were a partner in Moss Adams, working with large RIAs and ensembles to, to walking a few thousand miles in the shoes of an ensemble practice uh, at Fusion. And I'll ask you to talk a little bit about that. Now you're consulting with RAs and ensembles again. And so the way I see it, you were part of a successful coaching staff. Then you became a successful player. Then you went back to become a head coach with a lot of great perspective. So tell us a little bit about that journey and and what what you love about what you're doing right now.
1: It's um I mean it's it's certainly not a journey I planned. Uh I, I think just kind of life evolves that way. You you take a certain path and it takes you places and it very often it doesn't take you where you expect it to be. But uh, I'm very grateful for all these experiences. And that's really what happened to me in Moss Adams. is I spent almost 10 years there, nine years or so. And I love the work and I love my colleagues and I love the firm. But I kind of came to this realization that being a consultant is a little bit like being a sports commentator. And you appreciate that one. Uh, you're kind of telling people what's happening on the field and you're telling them what should be happening perhaps on the court and what players should be doing and what perhaps they're not doing or perhaps what they could do better. And then I realized, you know, being a commentator is for older people. It's usually for retired players. And at the time I was only 32 years old. I, I wasn't old. I just wanted to be on the court. I wanted to play the game, not just be talking about it. And that was really the decision to leave Moss Adams and join Stuart Silverman, my partner in Fusion, was really driven by the desire to be a player, uh, to be on the court, to be on the field, to be right where things happen. Um, it was really. Stuart called me one holiday season. And he said, "Hey, what are you? You're not a corporate guy. Uh, why are you in a big corporation?" I said, "You know what? I think you're right. I think it's time that I, I did something smaller with a smaller team of people with a smaller set of resources." And I really, really tremendously enjoyed it. Uh, I mean, tremendously enjoyed it.
0: Well, and you, to this you might- day,
1: when I talk to advisors, I most of all. Tell them that, you know, I've done a few things in my career, but the thing that I'm most proud of is I have been and continue to be a business owner.
0: Well, and being that that business owner and, and dealing with the challenges and the opportunities that, that came with Fusion and with Stewart, it just gives you so much more perspective. And I got to think credibility when you're talking to leaders of organizations that face or are facing the same challenges and opportunities, right? <laughs>
1: I think so. I mean, being a business owner is a is amazing experience. Uh, it's a lot like being a parent. Uh, you got to create something and hopefully create something wonderful, something that you're proud of and something that also takes a life of its own without you and beside you. Much like having kids and I have two of them. They're not kids anymore. I mean, at least one of them is an adult, uh, not just technically, but in many other wonderful ways. But um, I mean, they take a life of their own, and they they kind of run away from you. That's a wonderful thing, and it's the same is true for a business. You create something out of nothing, and, and then you give it all your heart and your care, and then takes a life of its own, and hopefully runs away from you. But because if it still stays with you when they're thirty five, then you have a problem. So so it really is meant to run away from you, but it's a it's a responsibility. And you, it requires a lot of your emotional investment, not just your investment of capital and investment of time. And I've learned to respect and appreciate that uh, because that's what advisors do. They invest their emotions, they invest their hearts and minds into the business, not just their money and their time. And only business owners know what that feels like. Only business owners know what it feels like to stay awake at night thinking about a conversation next day with an employee. Uh, to, you know, be looking at the bank account and wondering, like, what does this mean? If 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 this recession, if this crisis, if this turn of events continues, what does that mean? What does that mean? Not just for, for my family and myself, but also for all the people that I'm responsible for. Right. And it's just a tremendous responsibility that I think... You know, business owners are are kind of relate to each other because they know what that means, much like parents relate to each other because they know what that means. Uh, sometimes that happens on the airplane. If you fly, occasionally there's a baby crying. There's always a baby crying, actually. Um, and you can kind of immediately tell by the reactions of the, the, the passengers who are the parents and who are not. Those that they've never had a child, they look almost with anger at that that mother or that father. And it's like, why why can't you make that baby stop crying? Why can't you take care of your child? And those that have had a child look at that and say, you know what? I know what that's like. I, I know you you want to, but you can't really do anything. And I, I know what that feels like. And I think the same is true for business owners. They know what it feels like, and only they know what it feels like. Um, everybody else feels like, why don't you do something? Can't you just run this business better? Can't you just manage people better? Can't you just pay people better? And and only business owners know that, no, it's it's difficult, and it's not easy, and you want to, but you, you don't always have the answer, or even the ability to.
0: Yeah, well, and then you see it come full circle, right? As we're seeing today in the consolidation of this industry, where then- with your business you got to, you you're tackling perhaps another challenge or opportunity to determine what to do with this business you spent 35 years with do you sell it how does that impact your staff the people you care most about your family and and your clients as well so you know you've you've seen that you've you've consulted with advisors that have gone full circle from starting a business to managing to growing it and then selling it And, uh, and again, I know you went through a bit of that experience at Fusion as well. So again, I think the perspective you bring to the table is just simply amazing.
1: I, 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 you know, what can I say? I, I appreciate the opportunity to be involved with so many businesses and uh, I'm proud to have owned two or three of them as well, including a small, but absolutely amazing boxing gym in Seattle, which I can't stop talking about.
0: A boxing gym. Oh wow! Well, you didn't
1: know that I own a boxing gym.
0: I, I think I had heard that, but you know, unless you converted it to a basketball gym, I probably wasn't as interested. But uh, you know, but you know, I, I, I hear it's a heck of a workout, so perhaps I should be considering it.
1: I was going to say, you know, at six eleven, nobody can reach your face, anyways. You you might give it a try.
0: Yeah, something. To- my coach told me a long time ago. He said, Derek, I can't teach quickness, so I I, have, I suspect that has something to do with. Boxing, but, but let's let's talk a little bit about the evolving of a business. And, you know, you work with ensembles, and I, I'm gonna ask you to define that in a second. But you know, basically a lot of advisors have gotten in this business because they enjoy working with their clients. They're good wealth managers, they they're good relationship managers, but over time they fashion themselves as good business managers as well and want to grow beyond their book of business, so to speak. And I know you work with ensembles. Uh, have worked successfully with them but what what actually defines for our audience here what defines an ensemble of practice
1: i you know i I think it's a, it's most of all a state of mind um, it's the explicit and implicit agreement that everything we do that we will do it together um ensemble in French simply means together uh, literally is the word for together and uh, it, the term has kind of a curious history in it was 1999, uh it was the very first Moss Adams study of benchmarking in the industry. And I was an entry level employee, literally the, the lowest level position. I was in a cubicle crunching a spreadsheet containing the PLs of uh, something like 300 advisory firms. And we had noticed at the time that. Uh, firms that had multiple professionals were performing better in terms of growth, in terms of profitability, in terms of the quality of clients that they're attracting. So analysis shows that these are better firms. So I'm looking for a way to describe them. And back in those days, of course, everything is an Excel spreadsheet. So I call them multi-professional firms, except for when you create a table and that's the heading of the table, multi-professional firms, it's too long. It doesn't fit. So it doesn't fit. So I'm looking for some way to describe multiple professional firms, multiple professionals, and eventually came to the idea of like, why don't we call these ensemble firms and the other ones solo firms, much like you would in music. Uh, but really, in terms of kind of a functional definition beyond the, the history, it really has to do with doing things together. And the more you do together, uh, the more powerful the firm is. Um, the more you are a team rather than just five players on the court, the better you're going to be and the better your, your probability of winning the game. And it's kind of interesting actually watching the Olympics. It's interesting watching the national teams because they don't play together very often. Uh, They don't train together that much. Uh, so it's not just the quality of the team, the players you can put on the team, but it's also their ability to come together and function as a team that's really important for winning. And the same is true for ensembles. It's not enough to just recruit people and throw them together in one office. It's more important that you create a culture of sharing clients, helping each other, managing the business better, being good stewards of the business, investing your capital, and really being able to think about the best interest of the business, not just about what's best for me and what what that really defines an ensemble that that frame of mind to be able to ask the question what does the business need not just what does philip need
0: and what 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 level of importance does someone's willingness to accept a role that perhaps is different than what they grew up grew up in through their career
1: yeah and i it, it's kind of interesting i mean i, I he, every time in these because i spent a lot of my time sitting in strategic planning or similar kind of boardroom conversations being being involving leaders business executives and managers of advisory firms and every time I hear a phrase that starts with um, I desire to do or I want to be involved with or it's my wish to to do something I kind of cringe a little bit because ideally in a business setting the conversation starts with what does the business need And that's very difficult because to a degree, entrepreneurs are creators and they create something that fascinates them. They create something out of the desire to see it happen, to see it exist. Um, And then all of a sudden to tell somebody like that, that, look, you kind of have to really not just follow your fancy, but you have to be thinking in terms of what does the business need first? And then what do we do? You want to do second is counterintuitive, very difficult. And it's just a change of mentality. And I'll go back to comparing it to being a parent. I mean, kind of that's what happens when you have kids. You realize this, like, yes, I do want to go out for happy hour, but no, instead I'm going to go and pick up my kid from daycare and play Legos with them uh, because that's what I need to do. And being able not just to do what's needed to do, but actually being able to enjoy what's needed to do and kind of find satisfaction in that changed role, uh, it's really critical for being a successful business owner.
0: So it's going from I to the we and, um, and making the sacrifices, like you just said, using the family analogy for the benefit of the firm and the benefit of the team.
1: And finding fulfillment that, that allows you to look at them, not just as sacrifices, but actually as a different dimension of your experience that I'm not just going to tough it out because you can't tough it out. I mean, if you're raising a kid, you got to, you know, tough it out maybe for about 18 to 23, four years or so, depending on when you want to let go. But with a business, you basically, if you're toughing it out, you're going to be toughing it out for the rest of your career, which is quite a long time. You can't tough it out. As they say, you can't hold your breath forever. Uh, So you kind of have to not just tough it out. You have to find fulfillment in it. To some degree, because we're talking about basketball, and I love, love, love sports, including basketball, it's kind of the difference between a player and a coach. Uh, an excellent player can do a lot and achieve a lot. An excellent coach can enable others to do a lot, achieve a lot, and also would be very proud and happy for them. Uh, that's why, I, 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 if I remember correctly, I think Jordan tried to coach or had some conversations about coaching. It wasn't going very well because his mentality was very, very different.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, he
1: wanted the ball in his hands, not to, to see others play and others to perform it.
0: Absolutely. How much do you think the complexity of of our business today, I mean, driven by the regulators, driven by, I mean, every time I look at a Michael Kitsch's map, a technology map, my mind, I'm impressed, but my mind's also about to explode. So how much of, of this complexity of our business has led to the popularity of an ensemble practice where People have different roles. They work together, matching the strengths and weaknesses. How much of that has contributed to, to the rise of the ensemble practice?
1: I, I think actually our business is relatively simple. Um, but as Einstein would say, just because something is simple doesn't mean is it easy. Um, I think our business is, is so successful and continues to grow and prosper. It's because it's built on very strong relationships and it's built on the ability of select professionals to establish a relationship of trust with their clients it's as simple as that Uh, for as long as clients trust their advisors they follow their lead then we have this business Um, and an advisor a good advisor will find a way to use technology will find a way to use operations will find a way to be in compliance and everything else you know technology is ever evolving and compliance is always changing uh, back in the communist days, they were saying that, you know, the, the enemy of uh, the enemy of Soviet agriculture is uh, capitalism and the Four Seasons. And it's kind of like that in business as well. I mean, this is always something happening. It's either raining or not raining enough. It's either dry or too dry. Or, uh, it's either complicated or technology is changing. That's, that's That's a constant in business. There's constant change. But fundamentally, it comes down to do you have the ability to build a relationship of trust with your clients and then to make that relationship productive, which is where technology comes in, which is where all the other aspects of this come in. The the reason why ensembles are so powerful and successful is, uh, you know, multi-fold. Um, I think the first one is, very importantly, clients like ensembles. Um, Clients prefer to see an organization rather than one person in an office. Uh, The notion that you're trusting everything you own and all your wealth and everything you worked for to a person in an office uh, that is there all by himself or herself is kind of scary to clients. I think clients would love to see a capable, sizable organization that still for some reason somehow is also capable of intimacy and trust. it's kinda of like I frequently compare it to the old show Bar Cheers, where you know, where everybody knows your name. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of what clients wants to see is they want to walk through the door and everybody goes like, Hey Norm. And you know, they're already pouring the beer before you even order. But on the other hand, nobody wants to walk into an empty bar with just the bartender. Uh, That kind of feels spooky and feels like you have a drinking problem. So, I think ensembles come out of that desire to, for clients to see a team, but also a team that's that's capable of relating to them. It's not a one eight hundred number. It's not a a website where you know anonymously you're given resources. It's a human being or a group of human beings that you can relate to. Um, I think ensembles also are empowered by the notion of specialization. Uh, I mean, if you play pickup basketball, then it probably doesn't matter that much. But if you want to play professionally, you probably want to have some positions and you probably want to have the tall guy in the center and you want to have the guy that can dribble and pass as your point guard. And that's kind of what a, an ensemble is, really a different level of performance. If you're kind of playing the amateur game, yes, you can try to do everything. Uh, but if you want to play at a very, very high level, you probably want to start specializing. Uh, so that one person can be responsible for the investment functions, and another can be responsible for the advisory functions, and another can be responsible for tax expertise, and yet another can be responsible for executive leadership of the firm. One person trying to do all of these things, here I am by myself in the office, and you, know, you witnessed me taking 10 minutes just to log into the podcast. Um, <laughs> I wish I had a tech department to call at that point in time.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've always liked working with companies, regardless of the service or business, where they give you the notion that you're so important to me, Derek or Philip, that I'm going to bring in the specialist to talk to you about X. But at the same time, I'm still your relationship manager, still your quarterback. And I can't think of a client out there that wouldn't appreciate that uh, as long as everybody's talking in the know about norm and when he walks in the bar what beer he likes and what what's what's interesting to him right
1: yeah and i mean what happens is also knowledge turns into insight um if you have been my advisor for two three four years you have gotten to know me so well that you can start not just anticipating my needs and responding to them, but you can actually start telling me things that perhaps I didn't realize on my own. And that is really the power of a power of a consultative relationship. That by trusting each other, we'll exchange so much information that you can start providing me not just knowledge but also insight. Uh, that you will notice things that otherwise must have been may have been missed. That you will know how I behave, so you'll be able to coach my behavior. Uh, that you can anticipate what I'm likely to do or what some of my needs may be before I even know it. And that is incredibly powerful.
0: So is the customer driving, because I, you know, over the last 20 years, we've seen a lot of growth of, of the ensemble practices out there. Is the customer's needs and the desire to be working with a team versus an individual, is that driving the growth? There's got to be something from the advisor side that's driving it as well, right? <sighs>
1: i You know I think advisors are are really kind of find themselves in the right place at the right time um All of us are surrounded by incredible amount of complex complexity we We have to make so many decisions uh we gotta save for retirement, and nobody else is gonna help us uh even the social security system may or may not exist by the time we make it there. Uh, We got to manage our careers and all the income they generate. And careers are incredibly complicated. I mean, depending on your position, depending on the kind of profession you have, you're signing employment contracts and you're navigating career tracks and you're moving through the executive ranks of Amazon or a large corporation or you're starting your own business. Um, and by the way, you're taking care of kids and education is becoming incredibly expensive and you're wondering how to best save for it and exactly what program to use. And by the way, your parents maybe didn't save enough for retirement, so you got to help them. And by the way, they have medical needs as well. And somebody in the family gets sick and, and you're surrounded by all this complexity. And you're just dying for someone to help you. Uh, but it has to be someone that you can trust. And, you know, paradoxically, I, I mean, I'll even speak from personal experience. I i emailed our CPAs in, I think, April or May. In, it was in May with a couple of questions. said, we can't do it now because it's extended tax season. But when it's done, maybe we'll get back to you. They still haven't. Um, I go to my dentist, but I don't see my dentist. I see a bunch of technicians who are wonderful, but I haven't seen my dentist in a while because it's you know they're so heavily leveraged. I think he has seven chairs and he just runs from one to the other. The guy is really in, in great shape. You go to the hospital and you can't even talk to the doctor because you know the doctor's hidden somewhere behind an army of nurses and administrators. Uh, Kind of in the present day world, this type of relationship where you walk in someone's office and they give you an hour and a half, two hours of their undivided time and they know what they're talking about and they've spent the time to get to know you and they don't just remember the name of your kids and dogs, but they actually remember the meaningful aspects of your life. I think, honestly, the advisory relationship is very unique. Sadly, it's kind of unique in giving the customers this incredible experience that this is all about you. And by the way, all of our resources and attention is focused on you.
0: And that has led to the stickiness of clients. I mean, what yes. client doesn't like the ability to see their advisor when, especially when they haven't seen their doctor, or dentist in months. So there's a, a premium paste, uh, placed on the service that we get through this industry. And obviously the strategic consolidators out there and the private equity firm see that value as well when it comes to stickiness of the business, the recurring revenue <sighs> and all of that. So I, I, I completely agree with you. They can- see
1: it, hopefully they also respect it uh, because there's a temptation and hopefully they can resist it to do what was done in the hospitals, for example, where administrators figure that, hey, we could be making more money uh, if we had the doctors rather than seeing two patients every hour that we have them seeing seven patients every hour. Um, we will make a lot more money. Uh, Yeah, we will. But, you know, the doctor running from one exam room to another is not exactly best for the patient. So hopefully our industry can retain that sense of connection with the client and the the undivided attention on the client. And I know private equity people are very, very smart people. Um, Hopefully they can respect that relationship and not just focus on the spreadsheets. Because the spreadsheets will tell you, something perhaps different but the experience uh being in the business will tell you that for as long as you have those relationships and that's the simple part for as long as you maintain and grow these relationships you will always have a wonderful business
0: but if there's it, an argument I, out there that the next generation of investors isn't going to place as much importance on the value of those relationships that a millennial it cares more about that you're communicating through the right channels and actually being there for that relationship. I mean, how would you re- respond to that?
1: I I mean, I'm no, not an expert in these things, and I honestly think some of these may be an overgeneralization. But listen, everybody likes walking into the bar cheers um, and saying cheers and talking to the bartender. And to be honest, I don't think a lot of people are going to buy their beer from a vending machine. Um doesn't matter what the vending machine. I think Sam Malone still has a career out there. And there's still bartenders out there. Human beings like to relate to other human beings. Uh, we, I believe we're programmed that way. I think there's quite a bit of research to indicate that. that one of our strongest desires, uh, and it's a very deep desire, is to belong and relate. And I think advisory firms actually create that very successfully, create a relationship. They almost create a sense of belonging that you know, their clients have a way of identifying with the firm and identifying with the community of clients that the firm serves. And I think that's a powerful connection. And, you know, granted, we have disappointed each other to a degree and becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I, like, literally, I, I observed this with my bank. It's not infrequent that you go to the branch and there's a line in front of the ATM and literally there's no one inside the branch. The tellers, they're there, available, but everybody's at the at the... Everybody is at the ATM. It's not because people don't want to talk to a teller. Not at all. It's because the same bank has spent years and years telling us they go to the ATM, don't talk to the teller, we'll charge you extra if you talk to the teller, go to the 800 number, let me show you the massive menu of, uh, of options, you know, push one through nine instead of actually talk to a human being. So, so we start training people, you know, don't talk to me and then we're surprised they don't want to talk to us. I think the advisory industry historically has resisted that temptation very well. And as a result, anyone who's had an experience with an advisor is not going to go back to the 1-800 number. I actually have some research. Uh, I mean, we can all see the retention rates are absolutely amazing. Um, the industry retains clients at something like 98 99%. Um, there are not a lot of people who have had an advisor, dropped their advisor and decided not to, to ever hire an advisor again.
0: Right. Well, I mean, they value a lot of the things that that we take for granted in a relationship, but, but are when not when when in a situation where those things and those services and those capabilities aren't there anymore, uh, they realize what they had. And so it's I always liken it to living in San Diego. Those that have never lived anywhere else thinks when it gets to fifty degrees here and they don their down jackets, it's freezing. Or if there's an ounce of humidity, they go nuts here. Yes. Whereas if you place, you know, go go to Houston for a, a week during August, come back, you'll appreciate it a lot more. And I think that's what a lot of clients of advisors realize is that this extra attention that often has nothing to do with the investment management uh, is is why they're paying that eighty basis points, one one percent, or whatever it is.
1: Yeah, and by the way, in Seattle, when it turns 50 degrees, we take off our shirts and hope we, you know, develop some tan or something. That's that's probably our heat wave. But I, I mean, I, and I, it's very tempting also to look at the advisory profession as technical. And it is very technical. To be a good advisor, you need to be well-educated. You need to be skilled. You need to be using the right tools. You need to be doing all the right analysis. But at the end of the day... All of these important decisions are also judgment calls. Judgment calls in the sense that they require experience, they require empathy, they require an understanding of the client. And that's not a technical but it, that's not a technical ability. It's a relationship ability. It's almost to me, there's almost a danger of looking at the advisory profession as, as a set of algorithms. Uh yeah, there's a set of algorithms there, but it also is the ability to relate to the client, understand the client, and see how those algorithms will somehow impact the client.
0: Yeah. Well, there's – look, there's a lot of our listeners here that are are very good – You have a lot of
1: listeners? I'm very surprised. Very
0: good financial advisors. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, They're calling me all the time. There's that (laughs) that sense of humor I was talking about.
1: Oh, that's the dry (laughs) – that's my smart out uh, sense of humor. Yeah. Forgive me for that.
0: So the few listeners that I have are yeah. interested in taking their firms from good to great and, and getting to the next level. And so adding more clients, adding more assets, but not losing that personal touch. So I think I, I saw on your website, you've got a whole bit about communication and how important communication skills are. Do you think that's the the secret sauce to being able to grow, but still being able to deliver on the relationship quote, quotient that you value with your firm that you profess to deliver to your clients.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think being a good professional, being a good advisor is, is, has multiple dimensions and you can't ignore one at the expense of others. Uh, to be a good advisor, particularly if you're a business owner, um, I, I think the first and fundamental skill is you have to be a knowledgeable expert. You have to be good at what you do. You have to actually have the training, education, and experience to competently help clients. I think number two, if you're going to be particularly a good business owner, you also have to know how to manage relationships and be a good relationship manager. And that's very different than being an expert. Uh, Being an expert is a technical knowledge. Uh, Being a good relationship manager is all about being able to relate to people and understand them and, and accumulate insight into their behavior and also your own reaction to their behavior. To be a good business owner, you also have to be a good business developer. I absolutely insist on that. I believe that you can be good as an advisor if you can be growing the business. And that's not selfish. I mean, if a doctor has more patients, that means they're helping more people. Not being able to convince anyone to to actually use your help, to me, that uh, speaks to some form of deficiency, We live in a world of specialization, but you got to find the balance between specializing but also having all the skills that are necessary.
0: What are a few of the skills that advisors can learn or develop that will make them better relationship managers, as you were talking about earlier?
1: Um, I mean, one thing to be clear, um, in our latest study, um, it will be published in about a month or so, but I can spill the beans and give you the results. In our latest study, the average income per owner in an advisory firm is $800,000. thousand. Eight hundred is well above anything that attorneys dream about, doctors dream about, even surgeons dream about, CPAs, dentists. The advisory profession is incredibly lucrative. And to some degree, when we talk about the the expectations of an advisor who's a business owner, we're describing if these were athletes, these are professional athletes. If you're an advisor and if you're a business owner, you should look at yourself as a, as a professional athlete, meaning we're not playing pickup anymore. So you should expect a lot from you and a lot is expected of you. So you should be good at all of these things. And it's not easy. I mean, yes, we're talking about people who are very talented. And, and got to a fairly rare level of, of performance. But, but also when we're talking about business owner advisors, we're talking about people who are at a very rare level of performance and, and they should have high expectations of themselves and the business will have high expectations of themselves. They're, in a profession, they're professional players. They're not amateurs anymore. Now, how can they be better relationship managers? I think mostly it takes a sincere interest in people. If you find yourself that you are more interested in spreadsheets than people, then you're probably not in the best of professions if you're an advisor. It's kind of, I, I back in the days when my son was still a kid, I used to coach soccer. And I had a bunch of kids telling me that they like soccer, but they don't like running. And I'm thinking like, i don't know how this is going to work um uh, and it's the same with advisors if you if you like being an advisor but you don't like people and you don't have a sincere interest in people i think you may have some issues um down the road or not you hire i
0: mean that's an extreme example with the soccer um but in this business let's say you don't like spreadsheets you don't like you don't like you know the the, the compliance side of things you don't like dealing with the regulators you can hire that out though
1: If you don't like compliance, I'm a little scared. I probably don't want to be in the same business. Um, You can hire a few things out, but you got to be careful what you hire out. Even in the 80s, when this sort of theory about focusing on your core competencies and outsourcing everything else kind of emerged, you got to notice the component of core competencies that you you need to focus on your core competencies and then hire other things out. My argument is that the spreadsheets are a core competency and relationship is a core competency and growing the business is a core competency. There's no getting out of those. You can outsource a bunch of things, but some of those are core competencies that cannot be outsourced.
0: Yeah, well, look, I think you mentioned you know, the average compensation. I also find that with that, um, you can... you. you advisors should be investing back in themselves, not just in their business, but in themselves. And some of the things you're talking about are are, are serious weaknesses of many advisors that I know, but they're not weaknesses that can't be overcome. You just got to spend time and perhaps some money.
1: That is a that is a fantastic thought. And I I, you know, I I I literally jumped out of my chair when you said that, but because that's so true. Um, As a professional, you have a responsibility to continue developing your skills throughout your career. And as an advisor, as a business owner, you got to continue working on your game. I very much believe uh, we kind of live in a society that that advocates strongly play to your strengths because God forbid you have a negative experience. Uh, But it's also necessary to take a look at what are your weaknesses and are some of those fatal flaws. Uh, And if you find a weakness that really is hurting you, then address that. Um, take take care of a weakness, invest in addressing a weakness, and then you can really play to your strengths.
0: So let's, let's, I want to segue into into my last question here. And I just want to have you tell us a little bit about your G2 Leadership Institute, because I think, I mean, that's an investment that I know that, um, you know, some advisors uh, who have been through this program with you have made in their careers. So tell us about some of the unique lessons that come out of this program, uh, that you put together.
1: Um, it's, it's mostly, it really begins with the realization, which is kind of an organizational level realization is that every firm as it grows is going to need more leaders. The, and leaders are the people that make difficult decisions. Leaders are the people who inspire others. Leaders are the people that help others achieve what they're trying to achieve. Leaders are the people who get others organized. The larger the firm, the more leaders you, you, you need. Uh, there's almost a perception sometimes that the firm has one leader. Um, And, you know, every good firm is going to have a CEO Uh, at some point in time. Yes, but that CEO cannot be everywhere. There's going to be a staff meeting in the operations department that's going to need a leader. There's going to be a marketing committee that's going to need a leader. There's going to be a client service team that's going to need a leader. Basically, every time two or three people are together, one of them has to be a leader. That's just how human beings operate. Uh, One of my favorite quotes, and I don't even know who said that, but uh, the quote is that a a group is a bunch of people in an elevator. A team is a bunch of people in an elevator, but the elevator is broken because now they have a common purpose to get out. Right. And whenever we find a common purpose, we need a leader because otherwise we're just going to be talking over each other and maybe, you know, bumping elbows in the, in the elevator. So we need leaders. So G2 as a program is really designed not to create successors. It's designed to create leaders, people who are willing to take care of others, which means that they're willing to learn how to manage, how to recruit, how to motivate others and including themselves. Motivating yourself is a critical skill. Sure. And of course they they'll, they'll learn the foundations of business strategy and all the theory of management and all the theory of strategy and execution and all the theory of compensation and benchmarking and financials and things like that because there's some theoretical knowledge to be absorbed, but most of all it's a group of people that have realized together that we need to improve the way we lead others, including leading ourselves. And they have committed a couple of years of their life to do it because um, it's it's purposefully designed to be almost like graduate school, that it's two years, uh, four meetings, something like 27, 28 webcasts. We're going to spend a lot of time doing this because it's a pretty hefty task.
0: Well, it sounds like a wonderful program, and I think it starts with the advisor or advisors realizing where their flat sides are where they need to make improvements where they can be more well-rounded and coming out of this program it sounds like they're they'll be not just good business managers but like you said good leaders
1: very much and um, you know every good business has a bunch of good leaders uh, there's just one doesn't exist without the other
0: yeah well, hey Philip, this has been fantastic as always talking to you. You've got uh, just a unique insight in the business, some great likenesses to other parts in the in, other parts of our lives that people can relate to, and I, I I really appreciate that as well. Thank you very much for your time today, and uh, keep plugging away and, and generating more leaders in this industry for us.
1: Thank you so much, Derek. It's always such a pleasure talking to you. And you've certainly led some of the most amazing businesses in this industry. So look forward to whatever the next thing is that you're going to do.
0: All right. Thanks, Philip. And thank you for listening to my show today. You can subscribe to Can You Hold My Attention? podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as through our LinkedIn page with the same name. Have a great day and stay safe.